Open your Bibles with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Since Wednesday evening at a men's meeting where we were convicted to greater love of Christ, I have, as it were, been cast about upon the Sea of Galilee and caught no fish. But the Lord's given me leave today to preach to you my favorite text of doctrine when it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that by doing so, I can encourage you about the text, explain the text to you, and lift up the Lord Jesus Christ in a summary statement about Him that covers most everything we know about Him and what He's done for us. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the first of the three pastoral epistles in the Bible, our beloved brother Paul said these things to Timothy in the last three verses. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy... Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. It's that 16th verse that you ought to greatly love for the six Phrases that are in it that describe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. This is a summary statement of our faith. In this pastoral epistle... The Apostle Paul gives his testimony in chapter 1 and exhorts Timothy to faithfulness to the gospel. In chapter 2 are exhortations to prayer and the role of women in the church and for their silence in the church. In chapter 3, it's the qualifications for bishops and deacons. And so the Apostle can clearly say in verse 15 that I have just written to you so that you can know how you ought to behave yourself in the church of God. And then he describes the church as the pillar and ground of the truth. And then he gives a declaration statement of that truth in verse 16. If the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, which is the support and defense of the truth, then the truth is stated for us in the 16th verse. There's nothing more important for you than to learn the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, the Apostle Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Galatians 6, 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Our entire faith, religion, and worship are wrapped up in Jesus of Nazareth, our coming Savior, and King. When I say our coming Savior, it's not that He's going to be our Savior soon. He is our Savior, but He's coming soon. And we look to Him for 
everything in our religion. There is no fuller single verse in the Bible that deals so much with the mystery of our faith and it's given right here in this 16th verse. And it'd be a gratifying pleasure to me if I could stir you up a little bit today that you might love this verse as you understand its six phrases more perfectly. There's no other knowledge to compare to learning than to learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. I know that it is the beginning of the fall semester for some of you students, but I want to exhort you that the things you're going to learn this semester in eternity have zero value and in this earth have near zero value. They will do nothing for your soul. They will do little for your life. Because your progress professionally is still going to depend upon the sovereign providence of God blessing you and the intangibles of Christian character and godly obedience more than what you learn in the classroom. But I want to tell you that I'm going to give you some knowledge today from the Word of God, 1 Timothy 3.16, that I hope will stir you up. This is God's beloved and only begotten Son, and He will not allow any competitors to Him. When He was baptized... He thundered from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. When on the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter opened his mouth and said, Lord, it is good that we are here. Let us build three tabernacles, one to you, one to Moses, and one to Elijah. Then we heard these words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. And so we want to set the Lord Jesus Christ up as high as we possibly can. I love this text of Scripture, and I hope that I can help you love it. Let me read it to you again. Every word of it is important, as I'll show you. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The word and is a coordinating conjunction with the previous verse that tells us the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And so this coordinating conjunction tells us that we are about to get a description of what the truth is. We're about to get a summary statement of the truth that the church should, should solemnly Defend, teach, believe, and love. The church must know the truth. And that's what we're doing today by preaching. It should love the truth. It should spread the truth. And it should defend the truth. And we want to do that as a church. You know, the apostle in the very next verse, which is the first verse of chapter 4, look what he has to warn about. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly. This is very plain here. There's nothing you need to work hard at figuring out. That in the latter times, some shall depart from the faith. The faith. There's not a multitude of faiths. There's one faith. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Speaking lies in hypocrisy. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Forbidding to marry. And commanding to abstain from meats. Which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. This is a description of the Roman Catholic Church and and its rise in the latter days after the apostolic age when in the 4th, 5th, and 6th centuries 
Men departed from the apostolic faith and began teaching things like celibacy, which is the Roman Catholic doctrine for their priests not to have wives and their nuns not to have husbands, forbidding and commanding to abstain from meat. For those of you that grew up 40 or 50 years ago in the public school system, you'd have fish every Friday because the public school system was honoring the Roman Catholic Church by not serving meat on Fridays. And they had command to abstain from meats for their 40 days of Lent and so forth. This is a warning of the Roman Catholic Church. It's warned about in Daniel 7. It's warned about throughout by the ministry of Jesus Christ. Warning of ridiculous heresies that they would bring up that he specifically condemned in advance. It's warned about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Timothy 4, right here. And of course, a number of chapters in the book of Revelation speak of the city that sits on the seven hills of Rome. And there would be a church there, that great whore, riding the Roman beast into power. As the Roman Empire failed, the Holy Roman Empire took its place and was a great enemy of the churches of Jesus Christ and has put more Christians to death during the Dark Ages than any other single enemy of Christianity. So the warning is right there, immediately following this one sentence. But in the 15th verse, we were told that the church should be the pillar and ground of the truth. So these six things that are in this 16th verse are important for us to know, to love, to teach, and to defend. May God help us toward that end. You know, in the next pastoral epistle, which is Second Timothy, the apostle warns, about false teachers that would creep into houses and lead captive silly women in verses 6 through 8, 6 through 9 of 2 Timothy chapter 3. Then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle warns in verse 3, for the time will come. We don't have to be looking forward to that time. We're living in the middle of it. Listen to the description. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Today, if you were in Houston, you know you could go to the biggest gig in town and hear all about having your best life now. But there wouldn't be a thing said or taught about 1 Timothy 3.16 or any of the other 31,100 verses in a Bible. And he's now America's pastor. And Joel Osteen and his wife are such an important, powerful, evangelistic, pastoral team in that state and in that city. But they're just an example of the perilous times of the last days that Second Timothy chapter 3 and 4 described. And we stand up against that by believing, loving, teaching, and defending the truth as they turn away from it to hear feel-good girl fire, I mean, Girl Scout campfire stories from Joel Osteen. Right. We want the Word of God. Amen. And we want to love the Word of God. And here we are told in a summary statement, this is a summary of the truth of the Gospel. Amen. And the Apostle indicates that by the word and, connecting it to the 15th verse. Ministers need to convey this to other ministers to teach it. Fathers need to convey this truth to their children and their children's children. And it's our duty to remember this sacred truth, to teach it and to defend it from all attacks. Because Jude chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 tell us to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. And this is its delivery right here. It says, and without controversy. I love these words. Without controversy. 
There is no argument, there is no fight, there is no contest that what follows in this verse is great. It's without controversy. This is sublime, supreme information that you should want, you should love, you should acquire, and you should be able to teach and defend. And without controversy, these are words modifying the word great. The greatness of the gospel has no argument. In heaven or on earth, this is the greatest message. In one of the songs that we sang earlier this morning, we referred to, in the first song we sang, an angel choir singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. And if you go to Revelation chapter 5, all three choirs are there. The angelic choir was 10,000 times 10,000, and thousands of thousands. We don't even know how many that is. Right. 10,000 times 10,000 is a hundred million. And when you've got a hundred million angels singing plus who knows how many more million, they sang, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Then there was a choir that sang this, worthy is the lamb that redeemed us unto God. Amen. See, Jesus didn't die to redeem the angels, but he was slain and they had a great interest in his life on earth. They desire to look into the things involved in our salvation. But then the redeemed sang, Worthy is the Lamb that redeemed us by his blood unto God. Then the whole creation joined in by singing, Blessing and honor and glory and power and riches and wisdom unto him that sits on the throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. There's three choirs. And then there's the Amen Corner. It's the 14th verse. It's the four beasts that have eyes within and without and face in all four directions. And it tells us, and the four beasts said, Amen. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And without controversy, it's great. The angels of heaven adorn it. All the redeemed family of God. All creation blesses the Lamb. And the four special beasts say amen. amen. It's without controversy great. Let me ask you, why and how can anything else in your life compete with this? Right. Why do you want to read anything else but this? There is a place to read other things. Sometimes we're required to read other things. But what would attract your attention other than this? and the explanatory material in the Bible that backs up these six phrases. Oh Lord, have mercy upon us. If you allow any other pursuit in your life to compete with this, or to crowd it out of your life, then you are trying to controvert it. You're trying to overthrow it. You're trying to say that there's something more important. But it's without controversy great. And that's where we ought to leave it. It's great. It's not a slight matter. If we slight it in our minds or a response, or if we slight it in the plans for the assemblies of this church, we are doing a disservice to the Lord Jesus Christ and the God of heaven who sent him and the Holy Spirit that inspired this. This is great. This is great material. Lord, help us to keep it great. All six facts are about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're great. Not one should be neglected. Each one of them should be amplified and exalted. There is no greater text, truth, mystery, 
about our faith and right here. It's a wonderful statement. These facts about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, are life-changing information for his elect. Lord, help us to lay hold of them. How great are these six things to you? How important are they to you? Are you deceived? Are you distracted from them? You need to see them as being great. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Well, now it's called a mystery. The verse reads, and without controversy, great is the mystery. It's called a mystery. Now the gospel is the good news of what God has done for his people that the world doesn't know about. The world can't see it. The world doesn't care about it. The world considers it foolish because it hasn't been revealed to them. When the Bible uses the term mystery or mysteries, and it uses it often in the New Testament, the New Testament are those things that God has prepared for them that love Him, those things God has prepared for His elect, the way that Jesus Christ came into the world, what God did through the Lord Jesus Christ, all those things are mysteries because the natural man can't see them, doesn't understand them, refuses them, thinks they're foolish when he does hear them. That's why they're mysteries. They cannot be known by natural means of acquiring knowledge. They cannot be found out by a microscope. They cannot be discovered by a telescope. They cannot be learned in a think tank at Columbia University or anywhere else in the world. They must be given by revelation. You cannot rationalize these six things because you wouldn't even have a starting place. Who can rationalize about a man ascending up through the interstellar spaces into the presence of God without a shuttle? Lord, help us. The natural man doesn't see them. It's not a mystery to us, though. These six things are not mysterious. They're revealed facts of the gospel. But they're called mysteries. And the way that the Lord dealt with mysteries, and the reason why there are mysteries, is God is not planning to give His truth to the wicked. That is why Jesus spoke in parables. The apostles came to the Lord Jesus and said, Why are you speaking to them in parables? They don't know what you're talking about. He said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it is not given to them. Matthew chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. You can read about it there and throughout the gospel. This Bible is written in such a way that the wicked find reasons to doubt it and disbelieve it, while the righteous find reasons throughout its pages to rejoice in God their Savior from the same book because God wrote it that way. We, we sing a song, Break Thou the Bread of Life to Me, and in one of the verses of that song it makes, it refers to the fact that God's truth is revealed in Scripture and concealed in Scripture. Amen. It's concealed from the wicked, and it's revealed to the righteous. Amen. You can't take the Bible and help a wicked man. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. First Corinthians one eighteen. It's a mystery. Notice in verse 9 of First Timothy chapter 3 that the apostle has used this expression already to... Timothy, when he said in verse 9 that deacons ought to hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Now, how can you hold something that's a mystery? But it wasn't a mystery to deacons. Deacons of the apostolic churches understood the gospel, but it was a mystery to everyone else. Why were the Greeks still worshiping 
their pantheon of gods? Why were the Romans having their pantheon of gods? Why have these other nations come up with their billion deities in the Hindu religion? Or fat Buddha? Where, where does all this come from? Because they don't understand the things that are revealed from heaven. Just by the natural creation, God says they are without excuse in Romans chapter 1. So it's called the mystery of godliness. The mysteries are revealed to God's elect by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 with me. Holding, always holding your hand today at 1 Timothy 3. But come over to 1 Corinthians 2, which is a wonderful passage of scripture. But we don't want to get off track this morning. We just want to realize the fact is why it's referred to as a mystery. And I'm, and I'm doing this and I'm spending the moments right now for you to appreciate the fact that you understand a mystery. And if it wasn't for God's grace, you would not understand it. You would not care about it. It would be foolishness to you. You would rebel against it and you'd want to kill the speakers of it. That's the way it's been in the history of this world for 6,000 years, and it is certainly not getting better. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2 is a verse I've already quoted to you where Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's a good lesson for ministers right there with the Apostle Paul determined in his preaching. Verse 6, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. There is a wisdom that God's people have. Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world, that come to naught. Those princes don't amount to anything. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. It's hidden wisdom. In 1 Timothy 3.16 is hidden wisdom. We are going to see things that are stupendous. What's man's greatest accomplishment? We're going to laugh at it in light of 1 Timothy 3.16. Because without controversy, the things about Jesus Christ are great. But it's hidden wisdom. But God ordained it before the world unto our glory. Before He created Adam and Eve, God already had a purpose for the gospel. God already had a plan that the gospel would reveal of what He was going to do for us. Which none of the princes of this world knew. Pilate, Caesar, Herod, the king, whoever you want to pick, none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Caesar, Herod, Pilate would not have touched the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth if they would have known who he was, but they did not know who he was because the knowledge of him is a mystery known only by enlightened, regenerated elect. But as it is written, I hath not seen. See, there's no microscope or telescope or 2020 or 2015 or 2010 vision that's going to help. As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard. I don't care how good your hearing is. Neither have entered into the heart of man. There's no imagination or think tank of men getting together the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Amen. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit. For the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Back to 1 Timothy 3.16. That's why it's called the mystery of godliness. Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, Who do men say that I the Son of Man am? Oh, one said Jeremiah, one said John the Baptist, come back from the dead. And they had all these different ideas. And Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said to him, 
Flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. It wasn't homeschooling. It wasn't Christian school. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't a Sunday school teacher. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. But my Father which is in heaven. Because that's the only way to know the Lord Jesus Christ is God revealing him to a man. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. The word godliness here, it's used by Paul in this same pastoral epistle. In verse 3 of chapter 6, it's describing the gospel. It's the doctrine which is according to godliness. What is the doctrine which is according to godliness? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3 of chapter 6, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If a man preaches any other gospel, let him be accursed, Paul would say in Galatians chapter 1. Let's move on and get into these six phrases. But remember, and connects it to the faith that we ought to be the pillar and ground of the truth, that we ought to be the defender and supporter of, Without controversy tells us there's no debate about this matter. This is important material. It is great. And it's a mystery because we wouldn't know it without God revealing it to us. No one knows or believes or loves or serves Jesus of Nazareth without God's grace in his life bringing him to that place. And it's the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what's contained in that gospel. What's the first of these six Phrases that we want to delight ourselves in today. God was manifest in the flesh. God was manifest in the flesh. This is the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you want a doctrinal statement. If you want to think about something stupendous, the infinite, invisible, immortal, eternal, infinite, incomprehensible, independent, illustrious, God was on earth in a human body. God was manifest in the flesh. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He stood by the Sea of Galilee and spoke a fire into existence, brought fish up without a net, and cooked them for his disciples. When they said, we've taken none, he said, cast your net on the right side of the ship. And they caught 153 throwback type? No. Great fish, 153. And the ship did not sink when it should have. This is God in the flesh. What else do you want to think about God in the flesh? Mary conceived and missed a period without knowing a man. But she had already been told by an angel from heaven that the power of the highest was going to overshadow her and the holy thing which would be born of her in Luke one thirty five would be called the Son of God. Amen. God manifest in the flesh. God in the flesh at 12 could sit in the temple and debate with the doctors of the law, answering their questions and asking a few of his own. Oh, yes. And when Jesus asked a few of his own questions, as Matthew 22 tells us, as the second half of that chapter has three questions directed to three sects of the Jews, at the end it says they durst ask him no more questions. Because the Lord Jesus Christ had answers for all of them. God manifest in the flesh. When they crucified the Lord Jesus Christ and drove those stakes into his hands, it was God 
manifest in the flesh. When John got to lie on his bosom, when they would have supper, he was lying on the bosom of God manifest in the flesh. No wonder he wanted to write about it in the Gospel of John and mention that delightful fact. Not even angels have flesh. Angels don't have flesh. They're higher than flesh. Flesh and bones and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You can't have what we've got in this body in heaven because it stinks, it decays, it's rotten, it's limited, it's trashy, it's weak, it's beggarly, it's horrible, it's corruptible, it's dishonorable. These are words used in 1 Corinthians 15 compared to our glorified body. But Jehovah God first revealed to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, whose name should I tell Israel, the elders of Israel, has sent me? I am that I am. That being of the burning bush was manifest in the flesh. That is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. When when the word manifest is used, which we don't use very often, it means to make clearly Revealed to the eye, mind, or judgment, open to view or comprehension. It's obvious, is what the word means. You know, the manifest of a ship, you could have one of these huge cargo container ships coming from the other side of the earth, and it would have thousands and thousands of those railroad car size containers on it. You wouldn't have a clue what was in it, unless you had one piece of paper called the manifest. And that manifest would list everything that was in there. We have a manifest of the things that God hath prepared for them that love Him. We have a manifest of what God did through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And it was the Lord, it was, it was the Lord Jesus Christ and the Bible reveals it to us. God was manifest in the flesh. God made Himself clearly visible. God clearly revealed Himself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, that Jesus Christ is the express image of the person of God. Do you love the express image of God in the man, Christ Jesus? Look at John chapter 1 with me. While you keep your place at 1 Timothy 3, John 1, verses we all should know well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus wasn't in the beginning. Jesus of Nazareth requires a human nature for Jesus of Nazareth to exist. His divine nature was in eternity as the Word of God. This is the distinction that we make to save ourselves from espousing Jehovah Witness theology, like the New American Standard Bible does, and like so many do with a doctrine that originated with origin called the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. There was no son in eternity. There was the Word of God, and He was Jehovah, and He wasn't begotten in any concept of the Word whatsoever. He was God. God was manifest in the flesh. The Son wasn't manifest in the flesh. God had to be manifest in the flesh in order to be the Son. It's the Word of God. The New American Standard Bible in John 1.18 refers to the only begotten God. If you believe in a begotten God, you and I do not believe in the same God. Because my God is not begotten in any sense of the word. My Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was the only begotten Son of God. But God is not begotten. 
deity is not begotten in any sense of the word or any corruption of the word. This is what the Bible says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We come down to verse 14, and the Word was made flesh. That's why we're we're heading to this verse, because of 1 Timothy 3.16. The Word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, Full of grace and truth. Until there was Jesus Christ, the Father hadn't begotten anything. This is when He was begotten. When we could see the Son of God. When we could see the only begotten of the Father. When we could see the Lord Jesus Christ. That's when God had a Son. Prior to that, it was He was a Son by covenant. There's no Son of God in the Old Testament. It's all prophecy. A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel. God with us. God manifest in the flesh. God made flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. And what was that glory? The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. He's revealed him. He's made him manifest God was manifest in the flesh. Look at John as he wrote his epistle. That was the gospel of John. Look at 1 John chapter 1, which is his epistle on the same point. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. For the life... Well, let's get verse 1 because it mentions the word. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands of handle of the word of life. See, they saw the Lord Jesus Christ on earth. They heard the Lord Jesus Christ and they touched him. They, you know, Thomas was asked, do you want to put your fingers into my nail prints? Do you want to put your hand into my side? For the life was manifested, manifested, made clear, clearly revealed, made obvious, exposed to us, declared to us, as John 1.18 said. For the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. When did this manifestation take place? With the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made into the law. For God to have a son, there was a woman involved. There was a mother involved. The mother's name was Mary. We can read about it in Luke one thirty-five. The power of the highest shall come upon thee. The Holy Ghost shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Because God was its father, not Joseph, not any other man. She had that baby without knowing a man in any sexual way. Men and devils have sought for 2,000 years to compromise the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. They want to make Him a God. So the Jehovah's Witness Bible, in agreement with John 1.18, the New American Standard Version, and the Jehovah's Witness Bible, which is the New World Translation, are identical in John 1.18. But in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Is the Jehovah's Witness Bible in John 1.1. But we understand, no, 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 no. No, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we have it right here. Now, what have modern Bible versions done with 1 Timothy 3.16? They've taken away the word God and replaced it with who, he, or which. Taking away a proof text, a definite statement that it was God. Period. 
manifest in the flesh. Not he. Then we have to wonder, who are you talking about? Not which. Not who was manifest in the flesh. Because that's what we want to ask you. Who are you talking about? Unless you say, God. Because that's the Lord Jesus Christ. God. We believe in his unbegotten, uncompromised, eternal, divine nature. He is Jehovah in the flesh. Without modification. God was manifest in the flesh. Oh, thank you, Lord, for our Bibles. And thank you, Lord, for teaching us these simple things about your Son. This is the first of the six statements about the great mystery of godliness. God was on this planet. Who is God? Jehovah was on this planet. I am that I am was on this planet. Moses used his name, but he came to earth. God with us. Emmanuel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God. The Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. That God was manifest in the flesh, my dear brethren. God's power combined two natures into one being. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 2 and verse 9 tells us that the fullness of the Godhead was bodily in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have to have a body for the Son of God to exist. His divine nature was not begotten in any way. His human nature was begotten with the power of God conceiving that child in a virgin. And the result was the God-man. That God-man is God in His divine nature and is man in His human nature. For all of eternity, He will be subordinate to the Father because of His human nature. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 28, which reminds us of the dual aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes the Lord Jesus Christ was thirsty which was his human nature. Sometimes the Bible would say, the Lord Jesus Christ created the heavens and the earth, which he did as the word of God, as John chapter 1 taught us. 1 Corinthians 15, 28 says, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. The important thing to remember is that there is a man in heaven. There is a man in heaven sitting at the right hand of God who is the God-man. He is one, there's one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. God was manifest in the flesh. Without the flesh, he wasn't manifested. Without the divine nature, he's not God. God was manifest in the flesh. In the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's our savior. He's the head of our religion. He's our founder. He's the cornerstone of our church. He's the bishop of our souls. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. He is the alpha and the omega. He's the beginning and the end. He's everything. Amen. Do you love him this morning? He confronted one of his apostles and asked, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? And he asks us that this morning. This is the Son of God. Oh, so many things could be said about him. Such a stupendous truth that God is a man. It was on earth. He partook of literal flesh and blood 
our nature so that he could die and make atonement for our sins. He did not take upon him the nature of angels. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 17 is very clear about that fact. He did not take upon him the nature of angels. He took upon him the seed of Abraham in order for him to die in our place on the cross of Calvary. Unbelievable. God was manifest in the flesh. Listen, all they can think about is, have we found enough evidence beyond a toenail of the Cro-Magnon man? See, that's the world. Can we prove the Cro-Magnon man? Can we prove that great-granddaddy walked like this? You know, that's what they're worried about. Excuse me for a little demonstration. Sorry for those of you in video land that you missed my exhibition. That's what they worry about. But what does the Bible say? God was manifest in the flesh. They don't know about that. Listen, look at how long it took them to even find Osama bin Laden. They don't know anything. They can't even find the number one enemy in the world to them and all of their efforts and all of their witty inventions and all of their technological advances, they can't learn anything. Just like Jesus said and through the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 3, ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's scary. If you're ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth, how will we ever know the truth? God has to reveal it to us. And do you know why you're sitting in here this morning? For the most part, I've got, I can say, God's revealed it to you. And God's put a love for it in your heart so you wouldn't be here. But the first statement of truth that we want to rejoice in is God was manifest in the flesh. God in the flesh read the scriptures in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. Luke chapter 4. You can read about it. He stood up. He opened the book to Isaiah 61. He read a couple verses about himself. He closed the book. He handed it to the master of ceremonies. He went and he sat down. And God, manifest in the flesh, said, This day are these scriptures fulfilled in your midst. And the crowd, though they hated him, marveled at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. Then he preached them a short devotional so that they tried to kill him by leading him to the brow of their city to cast him headlong down a cliff. But God, manifest in the flesh, walked through their midst and continued his ministry. God, manifest in the flesh, was stripped naked. God, manifest in the flesh, was mocked as to whether he was the Son of God or not. God, was manifest in the flesh, was mocked as the King of the Jews. But this is the truth. Revealed in the scriptures. And everyone in the world still writes that this year is 2013, dated from Jesus of Nazareth. First Timothy 3 and verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. You get to pray in his name. You get to sing songs to his glory and praise. You get to read about him. You can read about his birth. You can read about his death. You can read about his resurrection. You can read about his preaching. You can find his sermons collected in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the Lord Jesus Christ, the truth that we shall never depart from, the truth that we want to uphold, defend, teach, and promote wherever we can. It says he was justified in the Spirit. God was manifest in the flesh. Now we know who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But then it says he was justified in the Spirit. The sense of justification here must be different than the way that it's used throughout most of the Bible when it talks about our sins being paid for so that we are righteous in the sight of God because Jesus didn't have any sins to be paid for. So how could he be made righteous in the sight of God? He was always righteous. And the Bible says that about him in Psalm 45 and Hebrews chapter 1. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. That's the character trait of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word justification here is to prove one's identity or character. Look, if you want to see another use of it, look at Luke 7, and we won't take long here. Luke 7, 29, I just want to prove from a Bible, if we compare spiritual things with spiritual, if we compare the words of the Holy Spirit in one place with the words of the Holy Spirit in another place, we can learn what we need to know to understand truth. Luke 7, 29, And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John. Now, how does getting baptized justify God? It declares that God's right and you're wrong. It just proves that God's right. God's in heaven. He's God. I'm a sinner. I'm in need of Him. That's why I'm being baptized to prove that He's right. It's a demonstration of the validity and the proof of the character of a person or thing. So when it says justified in the Spirit, the Lord Jesus Christ was proven to be the Son of God by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And oh, brethren, this wasn't left to doubt. The Holy Spirit was actively involved in the Lord Jesus Christ. He came upon Mary in order for her to conceive that child according to Luke 1.35. When Jesus was taken to the temple for his dedication, the Holy Spirit came upon Anna. The Holy Spirit came upon Simeon. Both of them in Luke chapter 2 opened their mouths and declared wonderful things about the Lord Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. Look at John chapter 1 with me and remember what happened at his baptism, which I have already referred to. Come with, come over to John chapter 1 though. Though the baptism is not described here, I want you to see what John has to say about the Lord Jesus Christ. He, John and Jesus were cousins, six months apart. John was six months older than Jesus. John is out baptizing in the wilderness of Judea in the Jordan River. Jesus comes out there and says, cousin, I'm here to be baptized. And John says, uh, <coughs> I think you should be baptizing me, cousin. And Jesus said, suffer it to be so for now that we fulfill all righteousness. Okay. If that's the way it should be. And so John baptized Jesus. And Jesus came straightway up out of the water. And the Spirit of God descended in the form of a dove upon his head. And the words came out of heaven, this is my beloved Son in who I am well pleased. Now see, nothing like that had been said for 30 years of his life. Nothing. 30 years, Mary had to keep these things in her heart and mind. She pondered them. But there was no visible demonstration like this until he was made manifest to Israel, 30 years of age. No one would have listened to him at 29 because they were wiser than our generation. Don't let me get off on that rabbit trail. 18-year-olds don't have a clue. And as soon as they're 29, they know they didn't have a clue at 18. You're not a man till you're 30. They wouldn't have listened to a 29-year-old. They were told not to. The priest had to be 30 years of age to engage in their office. Anyway, let's not get off on that rabbit trail. At the age of 30, he was baptized, and God, by the Holy Spirit, 
justified him to Israel. Meaning, proving that he was the son of God. Because God said so from heaven. How much better can you get than that? God saying so from heaven. Well, we think we've got one better. We have it written in the Bible. So it says in 2 Peter 1.19, we have also a more sure word of prophecy. Look at John chapter 1. I like these verses. You usually read about the baptism of our Lord in Matthew or Mark or Luke, but watch this. John chapter 1 and verse 29. Let's go back to 29 so that you can see the context. The next day, John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water... The same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizes with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. John's explaining his ministry. I was told that when I baptized someone and the Holy Spirit descended upon them, that is the man that I was sent to prepare his way before the people of Israel. God was manifest in the flesh Jesus was justified in the Spirit at His baptism for some of the early demonstration that He was the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit gave Him power for signs and wonders. Jesus had the Spirit without measure. He could, He can't be compared to an apostle. The Lord Jesus Christ had all the gifts in great power. No one had the Spirit given to Him like was given to the Lord Jesus Christ. But more than anything else, look at Romans chapter 1. This proved that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. He was justified by the Spirit this way. He died. He was checked to make sure He was dead. The Roman soldiers found Him to be dead. And so they just pierced His side to fulfill a scripture. John says, I was there, and I saw it. I know it was written, and I know it was fulfilled. They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. And if they hadn't pierced him, he wouldn't have been pierced, in the sense of John chapter 20. He was dead. They took him down from the cross. They wrapped him in clothes and much spices and put him in a tomb. They then sealed that tomb with a Roman guard. He was dead, dead, dead. His body was protected, guarded, and kept. But he rose from the dead. By the Spirit of God. Look at Romans chapter 1. Verse 3 says that the gospel concerns his son. Romans 1, 3. The gospel is described in verses 1 and 2 because Paul came to preach it. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. In his fleshly body, he was a descendant of David, both through Mary and through Joseph, legally and biologically. The the genealogy of one is in Luke 3. The genealogy of the other is in Matthew 1. And declared, look at verse 4, declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus being raised from the dead by the Spirit of holiness, it declared him to be the Son of God. So here, these mysteries 
that the world doesn't care about. The world doesn't care that Jesus rose from the dead. They mock it. They make fun of it for believing in such things. When the Apostle Paul preached on Mars Hills, on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, to the philosophers of the Greek nation, and he brought, he came up to the resurrection, they laughed at him. And he said, well, God has raised that Jesus from the dead because he's going to come back and judge this nation. And he walked out. But do you know what it tells us? Damaris, a woman, and Dionysius the Areopagite and others got up out of that assembly and walked out because what they had heard from the Apostle Paul was wonderful to their ears. Who in the world made the difference among Greek philosophers but the God of heaven? And listen, we're, we're lower than they are, and God's made a difference in our lives by opening our ears to those things. Back to 1 Timothy 3.16. Now that is a stupendous event. A man was resurrected from the dead when the authorities knew that the, that the message had gone out that he would be resurrected from the dead, so they took the precautions to make sure that his body couldn't be taken away so that someone could say he had been raised from the dead. But he was raised from the dead. And he was raised from the dead by the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Timothy 3.16, when you see the words justified in the Spirit, then you know what it's what is being talked about. It's the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Justified in the Spirit. He was justified at His baptism with the Spirit of God coming upon Him. He was justified by His miracles. He was justified and declared to be the Son of God with power by His resurrection from the dead. And see, between God manifest in the flesh and justified in the Spirit, we have Him dying on the cross of Calvary. This is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These things are without controversy the greatest things for you to know. The greatest things for you to believe. The greatest things for you to hold on to, to teach your children, to find others that believe the same like precious faith, and to worship this Savior together. This is why we have a church. You know, the Holy Spirit came down on Peter and the apostles in the day of Pentecost, and what did they do with that spirit upon them? They preached Christ and Him crucified. There are three witnesses left in the earth. You know, 1 John 5, 7 says, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three are one. The next verse tells us that there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. The Holy Spirit still bears witness to the identity of Jesus of Nazareth by blessing the preaching of his inspired word that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Every time a person is baptized, what do you have to believe in order to be baptized according to Acts 8.37? That Jesus is the Son of God. The blood. We're going to have the Lord's table later today, and it's a reminder that Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh justified in the Spirit who laid down His life for us. All three bear witness and justify, declaring and proving the identity and character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism is such a wonderful thing. First Peter 3.21 says, A like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God right. by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ. Baptism is so wonderful because we get to answer God.
for the resurrection of Jesus Christ because that proved that he was God's son. Why doesn't the world care about these things? They don't want the Bible in their school. They don't want the Ten Commandments in their school, but they don't want Jesus Christ. My brethren, when you're talking about our faith to others, be careful about using the word God. They don't know what that means. They think that Allah is a God. They think that Vishnu is a God. They think Buddha is a God. Don't, don't use God. Get better than that. Our God has a name. His name is Jehovah. Right. And His Son is the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not going to like those words. Because that draws the lines too tight. It draws the lines down to the Bible. God's not a name. God's a title of a supreme being. Jehovah is the name of our God. Or God Almighty. When you say God Almighty... That puts Allah where he belongs, under his feet. And the Lord Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit. Do you love him this morning? He came to us by way of John chapter 21 and asks, do we love him? I hope you love him this morning. And I hope you love and appreciate 1 Timothy 3.16. Let's sing a song, take a break, have some fellowship together, and we'll come back and look at the other four phrases that are in this precious verse that summarizes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ.